This episode is brought to you in part by Palm Beach Atlantic University's fully online Certificate in Cultural Apologetics program. Learn how to show the reasonableness and desirability of the gospel from leading Christian philosophers. For more information, go to pbaapologetics.com. Hey everyone, this episode of Truce is a continuation from the last one where I started reading the novel In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. You're going to want to go back and listen to that episode before starting this one. Okay, here goes part two. In His Steps, Chapter 11 Donald Marsh, president of Lincoln College, walked home with Mr. Maxwell. I've reached one conclusion, Maxwell, said Marsh, speaking slowly. I have found my cross, and it is a heavy one, but I shall never be satisfied until I take it up and carry it. Maxwell was silent, and the president went on. Your sermon today made clear to me what I have long been feeling I ought to do. What would Jesus do in my place? I have asked the question repeatedly since I made my promise. I have tried to satisfy myself that he would simply go on as I have done, attending to the duties of my college work, teaching the classes in ethics and philosophy. But I have not been able to avoid the feeling that he would do something more. That something is what I do not want to do. It will cause me genuine suffering to do it. I dread it with all my soul. You may be able to guess what it is. Yes, I think I know. It is my cross, too. I would rather do anything else. Donald Marsh looked surprised, then relieved. Then he spoke sadly, but with great conviction. Maxwell, you and I belong to a class of professional men who have always avoided the duties of citizenship. We have lived in a little world of literature and scholarly seclusion, doing work we have enjoyed and shrinking from the disagreeable duties that belong to the life of the citizen. I confess with shame that I have purposefully avoided the responsibility that I owe to this city personally. I understand that our city officials are a corrupt, unprincipled set of men, controlled in large part by the whiskey element, and thoroughly selfish so far as the affairs of city government are concerned. Yet, all these years I, with nearly every teacher in the college, have been satisfied to let other men run the municipality and have lived in a little world of my own, out of touch and sympathy with the real world of the people. What would Jesus do? I have even tried to avoid an honest answer. I can no longer do so. My main duty is to take a personal part in this coming election, go to the primaries, throw the weight of my influence, whatever it is, toward the nomination and election of good men, and plunge into the very depths of the entire horrible whirlpool of deceit, bribery, practical trickery, and saloonism as it exists in Raymond today. I would sooner walk up to the mouth of a cannon any time than to do this. I dread it, because I hate the touch of the whole matter. I would give almost anything to be able to say, I do not believe Jesus would do anything of the sort, but I am more and more persuaded that he would. This is where the suffering comes for me. It would not hurt me half so much to lose my position or my home. I loathe the contact with this municipal problem. I would so much prefer to remain quietly in my scholastic life with my classes in ethics and philosophy, but the call has come to me so plainly that I cannot escape. Donald Marsh, follow me. 
do your duty as a citizen of Raymond at the point where your citizenship will cost you something. Help to cleanse this municipal stable, even if you have to soil your aristocratic feelings a little. Maxwell, this is my cross. I must take it up or deny my lord. You have spoken for me also, replied Maxwell with a sad smile. Why should I, simply because I am a minister, shelter myself behind my refined, sensitive feelings and, like a coward, refuse to touch, except in a sermon possibly, the duty of citizenship? I am used to the ways of the political life of the city. I have never taken an active part in any nomination of good men. There are hundreds of ministers like me. As a class, we do not practice in the municipal life the duties and privileges we preach from the pulpit. What would Jesus do? I am now at a point where, like you, I am driven to answer the question one way. My duty is plain. I must suffer. All my parish work, all my trials or self-sacrifices are as nothing to me compared with the breaking into my scholarly, intellectual, self-contained habits of this open, coarse, public fight for a clean city life. I could go and live in the rectangle the rest of my life and work in the slums for a bare living, and I could enjoy it more than the thought of plunging into the fight for the reform of this whiskey-ridden city. It would cost me less. But like you, I have been unable to shake off my responsibility. The answer to the question, what would Jesus do in this case, leaves me no peace except when I say, Jesus would have me act the part of a Christian citizen. Marsh, as you say, we professional men, ministers, professors, artists, literary men, scholars, have almost invariably been political cowards. We have avoided the sacred duties of citizenship either ignorantly or selfishly. Certainly, Jesus in our age would not do that. We can do no less than take up the cross and follow him. The two men walked on in silence for a while. Finally, President Marsh said, We do not need to act alone in this matter. With all the men who have made the promise, we certainly can have companionship and strength even of numbers. Let us organize the Christian forces of Raymond for the battle against rum and corruption. We certainly ought to enter the primaries with a force that will be able to do more than enter a protest. It is a fact that the saloon element is cowardly and easily frightened in spite of its lawlessness and corruption. Let us plan a campaign that will mean something, because it is organized righteousness. Jesus would use great wisdom in this matter. He would employ means. He would make large plans. Let us do so. If we bear this cross, let us do it bravely, like men. They talked over the matter a long time and met again the next day in Maxwell's study to develop plans. The city primaries were called for Friday. Rumors of strange and unknown events to the average citizens were current that week in political circles throughout Raymond. The Crawford system of balloting for nominations was not in use in the state, and the primary was called for a public meeting at the courthouse. The citizens of Raymond will never forget that meeting. It was so unlike any political meeting ever held in Raymond before that there was no attempt at comparison. The special officers to be nominated were mayor, chief of police, city council, and city treasurer. The evening news in its Saturday edition gave a full account of the primaries, and in the editorial columns, Edward Norman spoke with a directness and conviction 
that the Christian people of Raymond were learning to respect deeply, because it was so evidently sincere and unselfish. A part of that editorial is also a part of this history. We quote the following. It is safe to say that never before in the history of Raymond was there a primary like the one in the courthouse last night. It was, first of all, a complete surprise to the city politicians who have been in the habit of carrying on the affairs of the city as if they own them, and everyone else was simply a tool or a cipher. The overwhelming surprise of the wire pullers last night consisted in the fact that the large number of the citizens of Raymond who have heretofore taken no part in the city's affairs entered the primary and controlled it, nominating some of the best men to all the offices to be filled in the coming elections. It was a tremendous lesson in good citizenship. President Marsh of Lincoln College, who never before entered a city primary and whose face was not even known to the ward politicians, made one of the best speeches ever made in Raymond. It was almost ludicrous to see the faces of the men who for years have done as they pleased, when President Marsh rose to speak. Many of them asked, who is he? The consternation deepened as the primary proceeded, and it became evident that the old-time ring of city rulers was outnumbered. Reverend Henry Maxwell of the First Church, Milton Wright, Alexander Powers, Professors Brown, Willard and Park of Lincoln College, Dr. West, Reverend George Main of the Pilgrim Church, Dean Ward of the Holy Trinity, and scores of well-known businessmen and professional men, most of them church members, were present. And it did not take long to see that they had all come with the one direct and definite purpose of nominating the best men possible. Most of them had never before been seen in a primary. They were complete strangers to the politicians. But they had evidently profited by the politicians' methods and were able, by organized and united effort, to nominate the entire ticket. As soon as it became plain that the primary was out of their control, the regular ring withdrew in disgust and nominated another ticket. The news simply calls the attention of all decent citizens to the fact that this last ticket contains the names of whiskey men, and the line is sharply and distinctly drawn between the saloons and corrupt management such as we have never known in years, and a clean, honest, capable, business-like city administration such as every good citizen ought to want. It is not necessary to remind the people of Raymond that the question of local option comes up at the election. That will be the most important question on the ticket. The crisis of our city affairs has been reached. The issue is squarely before us. Shall we continue the rule of rum and boodle and shameless incompetency, or shall we, as President March said in his noble speech, rise as good citizens and begin a new order of things, cleansing our city of the worst enemy known to municipal honesty, and doing what lies in our power to do with the ballot to purify our civic life. The news is positively and without reservation on the side of the new movement. We shall henceforth do all in our power to drive out the saloon and destroy its political strength. We shall abdicate the election of the men nominated by the majority of citizens met in the first primary, and we call on all Christians, church members, lovers of right, purity, temperance, and the home to stand by President Marsh and the rest of the citizens who have thus begun a long-needed reform in our city. President Marsh read this editorial and thanked God for Edward Norman. 
At the same time, he understood well enough that every other paper in Raymond was on the other side. He did not underestimate the importance and seriousness of the fight, which was only just begun. It was no secret that the news had lost enormously since it had been governed by the standard of what would Jesus do? And the question was, would the Christian people of Raymond stand by it? Would they make it possible for Norman to conduct a daily Christian paper? Or would the desire for what is called news in the way of crime, scandal, political partisanship of the regular sort, and the dislike to champion so remarkable a reform in journalism influence them to drop the paper and refuse to give it their financial support? That was, in fact, the question Edward Norman was asking even while he wrote that Saturday editorial. He knew well enough that his actions expressed in the editorial would cost him heavily from the hands of many businessmen in Raymond. And still, as he drove his pen over the paper, he asked another question. What would Jesus do? That question had become a part of his whole life now. It was greater than any other. But for the first time in its history, Raymond had seen the professional men, the teachers, the college professors, the doctors, the ministers, take political action and put themselves definitely and sharply in public antagonism to the evil forces that had so long controlled the machine of municipal government. The fact itself was astounding. President Marsh acknowledged to himself with a feeling of humiliation that never before had he known what civic righteousness could accomplish. From that Friday night's work, he dated for himself and his college a new definition of the worn phrase, the scholar in politics. Education for him and those who were under his influence ever after meant some element of suffering. Sacrifice must now enter into the factor of development. At the rectangle that week, the tide of spiritual life rose high and as yet showed no signs of flowing back. Rachel and Virginia went every night. Virginia was rapidly reaching a conclusion with respect to a large part of her money. She talked it over with Rachel, and they had been able to agree that if Jesus had a vast amount of money at his disposal, he might do with some of it as Virginia planned. At any rate, they felt that whatever he might do in such case would have as large an element of variety in it as the differences in persons and circumstances. There could be no one fixed Christian way of using money. The rule that regulated its use was unselfish utility. But meanwhile, the glory of the Spirit's power possessed all their best thought. Night after night that week witnessed miracles as great as walking on the sea or feeding the multitude with few loaves and fishes. For what greater miracle is there than a regenerate humanity? The transformation of these coarse, brutal, sottish lives into praying, rapturous lovers of Christ struck Rachel and Virginia every time with the feeling that people may have had when they saw Lazarus walk out of the tomb. It was an experience full of profound excitement for them. Roland Page came to all the meetings. There was no doubt of the change that had come over him. Rachel had not spoken much with him. He was wonderfully quiet. It seemed as if he was thinking all the time. Certainly, he was not the same person. He talked more with Gray than with anyone else. He did not avoid Rachel, but he seemed to shrink from any appearance of seeming to renew the acquaintance with her. Rachel found it even difficult to express to him her pleasure at the new life he had begun to know. 
He seemed to be waiting to adjust himself to his previous relations before this new life began. He had not forgotten those relations, but he was not yet able to fit his consciousness into new ones. The end of the week found the rectangle struggling hard between two mighty opposing forces. The Holy Spirit was battling with all his supernatural strength against the saloon devil which had so long held a jealous grasp on its slaves. If the Christian people of Raymond once could realize what the contest meant to the souls newly awakened to a purer life, it did not seem possible that the election could result in the old system of license. But that remained to be seen. The horror of the daily surroundings of many of the converts was slowly burning its way into the knowledge of Virginia and Rachel, and every night as they went uptown to their luxurious homes, they carried heavy hearts. A good many of these poor creatures will go back again, Gray would say with sadness too deep for tears. The environment does have a good deal to do with the character. It does not stand to reason that these people can always resist the sight and smell of the devilish drink about them. Oh Lord, how long shall Christian people continue to support, by their silence and their ballots, the greatest form of slavery known in America? He asked the question and did not have much hope of an immediate answer. There was a ray of hope in the action of Friday night's primary, but what the result would be, he did not dare anticipate. The whiskey forces were organized, alert, aggressive, roused into unusual hatred by the events of the last week at the tent in the city. Would the Christian forces act as a unit against the saloon? Or would they be divided on account of their business interests, or because they were not in the habit of acting altogether, as the whiskey power always did? That remained to be seen. Meanwhile, the saloon reared itself about the rectangle like some deadly viper hissing and coiling, ready to strike its poison into any unguarded part. Saturday afternoon, as Virginia was just stepping out of her house to go and see Rachel to talk over her new plans, a carriage drove up containing three of her fashionable friends. Virginia went out to the driveway and stood there talking with them. They had not come to make a formal call, but wanted Virginia to go driving with them up on the boulevard. There was a band concert in the park. The day was too pleasant to be spent indoors. Where have you been all this time, Virginia? We hear you have gone into show business. Tell us about it. Virginia colored, but after a moment's hesitation, she frankly told something of her experience at the rectangle. The girls in the carriage began to be really interested. I tell you, girls... Let's go slumming with Virginia this afternoon instead of going to the band concert. I've never been down to the rectangle. I've heard it's an awful, wicked place and lots to see. Virginia will act as guide, and it would be real fun, she was going to say, but Virginia's look made her substitute the word interesting. Virginia was angry. At first thought, she said to herself she would never go under such circumstances. The other girls seemed to be of the same mind with the speaker. They chimed in with earnestness and asked Virginia to take them down there. Suddenly, she saw in the idle curiosity of the girls an opportunity. They had never seen the sin and misery of Raymond. Why should they not see it, even if their motive in going down there was simply to pass away an afternoon? In His Steps, Chapter 12 
For I come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Be yet therefore imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, even as Christ also loved you. Hadn't we better take a policeman along, said one of the girls with a nervous laugh. It really isn't safe down there, you know. There's no danger, said Virginia briefly. Is it true that your brother Roland has been converted? asked the first speaker, looking at Virginia curiously. It impressed her during the drive to the rectangle that all three of her friends were regarding her with close attention as if she were peculiar. Yes, he certainly is. I understand he's going around to the clubs talking with his old friends there, trying to preach to them. Doesn't that seem funny? said the girl with a red silk parasol. Virginia did not answer, and the other girls were beginning to feel sober as the carriage turned into the street leading to the rectangle. As they neared the district, they grew more and more nervous. The sights and smells and sounds which had become familiar to Virginia struck the senses of those refined, delicate society girls as something horrible. As they entered further into the district, the rectangle seemed to stare, as with one great, bleary, beer-soaked countenance at this fine carriage with its load of fashionably dressed young women. Slumming had never been a fad with Raymond society, and this was perhaps the first time that the two had come together in this way. The girls felt that instead of seeing the rectangle, they were being made the objects of curiosity. They were frightened and disgusted. Let's go back. I've seen enough, said the girl who was sitting with Virginia. They were at that moment just opposite a notorious saloon and gambling house. The street was narrow and the sidewalk crowded. Suddenly, out of the door of this saloon, a young woman reeled. She was singing in a broken, drunken sob that seemed to indicate that she partly realized her awful condition. Just as I am, without one plea. And as the carriage rolled past, she leered at it, raising her face so that Virginia saw it very close to her own. It was the face of the girl who had kneeled, sobbing, that night with Virginia kneeling beside her and praying for her. Stop, cried Virginia, motioning to the driver who was looking around. The carriage stopped, and in a moment, she was out and had gone up to the girl and taken her by the arm. Laureen, she said, and that was all. The girl looked into her face, and her own changed into a look of utter horror. The girls in the carriage were smitten with helpless astonishment. The saloonkeeper had come to the door of the saloon and was standing there looking on with his hands on his hips and the rectangle from its windows, its saloon steps, its filthy sidewalk, gutter, and roadway, paused, and with undisguised wonder stared at the two girls. Over the scene, the warm sun of spring poured its mellow light. A faint breath of music from the bandstand in the park floated into the rectangle. The concert had begun, and the fashion and wealth of Raymond were displaying themselves uptown on the boulevard. When Virginia left the carriage and went up to Loreen, she had no definite idea as to what she would do or what the result of her action would be. She simply saw a soul that had tasted of the joy of better life slipping back into its old shell of shame and death. And before she had touched the drunken girl's arm, she had asked only one question. What would Jesus do? That question was becoming with her, as with many others, a habit of life. She looked around now as she stood close by Loreen, and the whole scene was cruelly vivid to her. She thought first of the girls in the carriage. Drive on. Don't wait for me. 
I'm going to see my friend home, she said calmly enough. The girl with the red parasol seemed to gasp at the word friend when Virginia spoke it. She did not say anything. The other girls seemed speechless. Go on. I cannot go back with you, said Virginia. The driver started the horses slowly. One of the girls leaned a little out of the carriage. Can't we... That is... Do you want our help? Couldn't you... No, no, exclaimed Virginia. You cannot be of any help to me. The carriage moved on and Virginia was alone with her charge. She looked up and around. Many faces in the crowd were sympathetic. They were not all cruel and brutal. The Holy Spirit had softened a good deal of the rectangle. Where does she live? asked Virginia. Nobody answered. It occurred to Virginia afterward, when she had time to think it over, that the rectangle showed a delicacy in its sad silence that would have done credit to the boulevard. For the first time, it flashed across her that the immortal being who was flung like wreckage upon the shore of this early hell called the saloon had no place that could be called home. The girl suddenly wrenched her arm for Virginia's grasp. In doing so, she nearly threw Virginia down. You shall not touch me. Leave me alone. Let me go to hell. That's where I belong. The devil is waiting for me. See him, she exclaimed hoarsely. She turned and pointed with a shaky finger at the saloon keeper. The crowd laughed. Virginia stepped up to her and put her arm around her. Laureen, she said firmly, come with me. You do not belong to hell. You belong to Jesus, and he will save you. Come. The girl suddenly burst into tears. She was only partly sobered by the shock of meeting Virginia. Virginia looked around again. Where does Mr. Gray live? She asked. She knew that the evangelist boarded somewhere near the tent. A number of voices gave the direction. Come, Lorene, I want you to go with me to Mr. Gray's, she said, still keeping her hold of the swaying, trembling creature who moaned and sobbed and now clung to her as firmly as before she had repulsed her. So the two moved on through the rectangle toward the evangelist's lodging place. The sight seemed to impress the rectangle seriously. It never took itself seriously when it was drunk, but this was different. The fact that one of the richest, most beautifully dressed girls in all Raymond was taking care of one of the rectangle's most noted characters, who reeled along under the influence of liquor, was a fact astounding enough to throw more or less dignity and importance about Lorreen herself. The event of Lorreen stumbling through the gutter dead drunk always made the rectangle laugh and jest, but Lorreen staggering with a young lady from the society circles uptown supporting her was another thing. The rectangle viewed it with soberness and more or less wondering admiration. When they reached Mr. Gray's lodging place, the woman who answered Virginia's knock said that both Mr. and Mrs. Gray were out somewhere and would not be back until six o'clock. Virginia had not planned anything farther than a possible appeal to the Grays, either to take charge of Lorene for a while or find some safe place for her until she was sober. She stood now at the door after the woman had spoken, and she was really at a loss to know what to do. Lorraine sank down stupidly on the steps and buried her face in her arms. Virginia eyed the miserable figure of the girl with a feeling that she was afraid would grow into disgust. Finally, a thought possessed her that she could not escape. What was to hinder her from taking Lorraine home with her? Why should not this homeless, wretched creature, reeking with the fumes of liquor, be cared for in Virginia's own home instead of being consigned to strangers in some hospital or house of charity. Virginia really knew very little about any such places of refuge. 
As a matter of fact, there were two or three such institutions in Raymond, but it is doubtful if any of them would have taken a person like Lorene in her present condition. But that was not the question with Virginia just now. What would Jesus do with Lorene? That was what Virginia faced, and she finally answered it by touching the girl again. Lorene, come. You are going home with me. We will take the car here at the corner. Lorene staggered to her feet and, to Virginia's surprise, made no trouble. She expected resistance or a stubborn refusal to move. When they reached the corner and took the car, it was nearly full of people going uptown. Virginia was painfully conscious of the stare that greeted her and her companion as they entered, but her thought was directed more and more to the approaching scene with her grandmother. What would Madame Page say? Lorene was nearly sober now, but she was lapsing into a state of stupor. Virginia was obliged to hold fast to her arm. Several times, the girl lurched heavily against her, and as the two went up the avenue, a curious crowd of so-called civilized people turned and gazed at them. When she mounted the steps of her handsome house, Virginia breathed a sigh of relief. Even in the face of the interview with her grandmother, and when the door shut and she was in the wide hall with her homeless outcast, she felt equal to anything that might now come. Madame Page was in the library. Hearing Virginia come in, she came into the hall. Virginia stood there supporting Lorene, who stared stupidly at the rich magnificence of the furnishings around her. Grandmother, Virginia spoke without hesitation and very clearly, I have brought one of my friends from the rectangle. She's in trouble and has no home. I'm going to care for her a little while. Madame Page glanced from her granddaughter to Lorene in astonishment. Did you say she's one of your friends? She asked in a cold, sneering voice that hurt Virginia more than anything else she had yet felt. Yes, I said so. Virginia's face flushed, but she seemed to recall a verse that Mr. Gray had used for one of his recent sermons. A friend of publicans and sinners. Surely, Jesus would do this that she was doing. Do you know what this girl is? Asked Madame Page in an angry whisper, stepping near Virginia. I know very well. She is an outcast. You need not tell me, grandmother. I know it even better than you do. She is drunk at this minute, but she is also a child of God. I have seen her on her knees, repentant, and I have seen hell reach out its horrible fingers after her again. And by the grace of Christ, I feel that the least I can do is to rescue her from such peril. Grandmother, we call ourselves Christians. Here is a poor, lost human creature without a home, slipping back into a life of misery and possibly eternal loss, and we have more than enough. I have brought her here, and I shall keep her. Madame Page glared at Virginia and clenched her hands. All this was contrary to her social code of conduct. How could society excuse familiarity with the scum of the streets? What would Virginia's action cost the family in the way of criticism and loss of standing, and all that long list of necessary relations which people of wealth and position must sustain to the leaders of society? To Madame Page, society represented more than the church or any other institution. It was a power to be feared and obeyed. The loss of goodwill was a loss more to be dreaded than anything except the loss of wealth itself. She stood erect and stern and confronted Virginia, fully roused and determined. Virginia placed her arm around Lorene and calmly looked her grandmother in the face. You shall not do this, Virginia. 
You can send her to the asylum for helpless women. You can pay all the expenses. We cannot afford, for the sake of our reputation, to shelter such a person. Grandmother, I do not wish to do anything that is displeasing to you, but I must keep Lorene here tonight, and longer, if it seems best. Then you can answer for the consequences. I do not stay in the same house with a miserable... Madam Page lost her self-control. Virginia stopped her before she could speak the next word. Grandmother, this house is mine. It is your home with me as long as you choose to remain. But in this manner, I must act as I fully believe Jesus would in my place. I am willing to bear all that society may say or do. Society is not my God. By the side of this poor soul, I do not count the verdict of society as of any value. I shall not stay here then, said Madame Page. She turned suddenly and walked to the end of the hall. She then came back, and going up to Virginia said, with an emphasis that revealed her intensive excitement of passion, You can always remember that you have driven your grandmother out of your house in favor of a drunken woman. Then, without waiting for Virginia to reply, she turned again and went upstairs. Virginia called a servant and soon had Lorene cared for. She was fast lapsing into a wretched condition. During the brief scene in the hall, she had clung to Virginia so hard that her arm was sore from the clutch of the girl's fingers. In His Steps, Chapter 13 When the bell rang for tea, she went down and her grandmother did not appear. She sent a servant to her room who brought back word that Madame Page was not there. A few minutes later, Roland came in. He brought word that his grandmother had taken the evening train for the south. He had been at the station to see some friends off and had, by chance, met his grandmother as she was coming out. She had told him her reason for going. Virginia and Roland comforted each other at the tea table, looking at each other with earnest, sad faces. Roland, said Virginia, and for the first time almost since his conversion, she realized what a wonderful thing her brother's changed life meant to her. Do you blame me? Am I wrong? No, dear, I cannot believe you are. This is very painful for us. But if you think this poor creature owes her safety and salvation to your personal care, it was the only thing for you to do. Oh, Virginia, to think that we have all these years enjoyed our beautiful home and all these luxuries selfishly, forgetful of the multitudes like this woman. Surely Jesus in our place would do what you have done. And so Roland comforted Virginia and counseled with her that evening. And of all the wonderful changes that she henceforth was to know on account of her great pledge, nothing affected her so powerfully as the thought of Roland's change of life. Truly, this man in Christ was a new creature. Old things were passed away. Behold, all things in him had become new. Dr. West came that evening at Virginia's summons and did everything necessary for the outcast. She had drunk herself almost into delirium. The best that could be done for her now was quiet nursing and careful watching and personal love. So, in a beautiful room, with a picture of Christ walking by the sea hanging on the wall, where her bewildered eyes caught daily something more of its hidden meaning, Lorene lay, tossed, she hardly knew how, into this haven, and Virginia crept nearer the master than she had ever been, as her heart went out towards this wreck, which had thus been flung torn and beaten at her feet. Meanwhile, the rectangle awaited the issue of the election with more than usual interest, and Mr. Gray and his wife 
wept over the poor, pitiful creatures who, after a struggle with surroundings that daily tempted them, too often wearied of their struggle and, like Lorene, threw up their arms and went whirling over the cataract into the boiling abyss of their previous condition. The after-meeting of the First Church was now eagerly established. Henry Maxwell went into the lecture room on the Sunday succeeding the week of the primary and was greeted with an enthusiasm that made him tremble at first for its reality. He noted again the absence of Jasper Chase, but all the others were present, and they seemed drawn very close together by a bond of common fellowship that demanded and enjoyed mutual confidences. It was the general feeling that the Spirit of Christ was the spirit of very often frank confession of experience. It seemed the most natural thing in the world, therefore, for Edward Norman to be telling all the rest of the company about the details of his newspaper. The fact is, I've lost a great deal of money during the last three weeks. I cannot tell just how much. I am losing a great many of subscribers every day. There are a good many different reasons. Some say they want a paper that prints all the news. Meaning, by that, the crime details, sensations like prize fighting, scandals and horrors of various kinds. Others object to the discontinuance of the Sunday edition. I have lost hundreds of subscribers by that action, although I have made satisfactory arrangements with many of the old subscribers by giving them even more in the extra Saturday edition than they formerly had in the Sunday issue. My greatest loss has come from a falling away in advertisements, and from the attitude I have felt obliged to take on political questions. Last action has really cost me more than any other. The bulk of my subscribers are intensely partisan. I may as well tell you all frankly that if I continue to pursue the plan which I honestly believe Jesus would pursue in this matter of political issues and their treatment from a nonpartisan and moral standpoint, the news will not be able to pay its operating expenses unless one factor in Raymond can be depended on. He paused a moment and the room was very quiet. Virginia seemed specially interested. Her face glowed with interest. It was like the interest of a person who had been thinking hard of the same thing which Norman went on to mention. That one factor is the Christian element in Raymond. Say the news has lost heavily from the dropping off of people who do not care for a Christian daily, and from others who simply look upon a newspaper as the purveyor of all sorts of material to amuse them or interest them, are there enough genuine Christian people in Raymond who will rally to the support of a paper such as Jesus would probably edit? Or are the habits of the Christian people so firmly established in their demand for the regular type of journalism that they will not take a paper unless it is stripped largely of the Christian and moral purpose? I may say in this fellowship gathering that owing to recent complications in my business affairs outside of my paper, I have been obliged to lose a large part of my fortune. I have had to apply the same rule of Jesus' probable conduct to certain transactions with other men who did not apply it to their conduct, and the result has been the loss of a great deal of money. As I understand the promise we made, we are not to ask any question about will it pay, but all our action has to be based on the one question, what would Jesus do? Acting on that rule of conduct, I have been obliged to lose nearly all the money I have accumulated in my paper. It is not necessary for me to go into details. There is no question with me now, after the three weeks' experience I have had, 
that a great many men would lose vast sums of money under the present system of business if this rule of Jesus was honestly applied. I mention my loss here because I have the fullest faith in the full success of a daily paper conducted on the lines I have recently laid down, and I had planned to put into my entire fortune in order to win success. As it is now, unless, as I said, the Christian people of Raymond, the church members and professing disciples, will support the paper with subscriptions and advertisements, I cannot continue its publication on the present basis. Virginia asked a question. She had followed Mr. Norman's confession with the most intense eagerness. Do you mean that a Christian daily ought to be endowed with a large sum, like a Christian college, in order to make it pay? That is exactly what I mean. I had laid out plans for putting into the news such a variety of material in such a strong and truly interesting way that it would more than make up for whatever was absent from its columns in the way of unchristian matter. But my plans called for a very large output of money. I am very confident that a Christian daily such as Jesus would approve, containing only what he would print, can be made to succeed financially if it is planned on the right lines. But it will take a large sum of money to work out the plans. How much do you think? asked Virginia quietly. He had known her when she was a little girl in the Sunday school, and he had been on intimate business relations with her father. I should say half a million dollars in a town like Raymond could be well spent in the establishment of a paper such as we have in mind, he answered. His voice trembled a little. The keen look on his grizzled face flashed out with a stern but thoroughly Christian anticipation of great achievements in the world of newspaper life as it had opened up to him within the last few seconds. Then, said Virginia, speaking as if the thought was fully considered, I am ready to put that amount of money into the paper on the one condition, of course, that it be carried on as it has been begun. Thank God, exclaimed Mr. Maxwell softly. Norman was pale. The rest looked at Virginia. She had more to say. Dear friends, she went on, and there was a sadness in her voice that made an impression on the rest that deepened when they thought of it afterwards. I do not want any of you to credit me with an act of great generosity. I have come to know lately that the money which I have called my own is not mine, but God's. If I, as steward of his, see some wise way to invest his money, it is not an occasion for vainglory or thanks from anyone, simply because I have put in my administration of the funds he has asked me to use for his glory. I have been thinking of this very plan for some time. The fact is, dear friends, that in our coming fight with the whiskey power in Raymond, and has only just begun, we shall need the news to champion the Christian side. You all know that all the other papers are for the saloon. As long as the saloon exists, the work of rescuing dying souls at the rectangle is carried out at a terrible disadvantage. What can Mr. Gray do with his gospel meetings when half his converts are drinking people, daily tempted and enticed by the saloon on every corner? It would be giving up to the enemy to allow the news to fail. I have great confidence in Mr. Norman's ability. I have not seen his plans, but I have the same confidence that he has in making the paper succeed if it is carried forward on a large enough scale. I cannot believe that Christian intelligence and journalism will be inferior to unchristian intelligence. 
even when it comes to making the paper pay financially. So that is my reason for putting this money, God's, not mine, into this powerful agent for doing as Jesus would do. If we can keep such a paper going for one year, I shall be willing to see that amount of money used in that experiment. Do not thank me. Do not consider my doing it a wonderful thing. What have I done with God's money all these years but gratify my own selfish personal desires? What can I do with the rest of it but try to make some reparation for what I have stolen from God? That is the way I look at it now. I believe it is what Jesus would do. Over the lecture room swept the unseen yet distinctly felt wave of divine presence. Mr. Maxwell, standing there, where the faces lifted their intense gaze into his, felt what he had already felt, a strange setting back out of the 19th century into the first, when the disciples had all things in common, and a spirit of fellowship must have flowed freely between them, such as the First Church of Raymond had never known before. How much had his church membership known of this fellowship in daily interests before this little company had begun to do as they believed Jesus would do? It was with difficulty that he thought of his present age and surroundings. The same thought was present with all the rest also. There was an unspoken comradeship such as they had never known. It was present with them while Virginia was speaking, and during the silence that followed. If it had been defined by any of them, they would perhaps have taken some such shape as this. If I shall, in the course of my obedience to my promise, meet with loss or trouble in the world, I can depend upon the genuine, practical sympathy and fellowship of any other Christian in this room who has, with me, made the pledge to do all things by the rule. What would Jesus do? All this the distinct wave of spiritual power emphasized. It had the effect that a physical miracle may have had on the early disciples in giving them a feeling of confidence in the Lord that helped them to face loss and martyrdom with courage and even joy. Before they went away this time, there were several confidences like those of Edward Norman's. Some of the young men told of loss of places, owing to their honest obedience to their promise. Alexander Powers spoke briefly of the fact that the commission had promised to take action on his evidence at the earliest date possible. In His Steps, Chapter 14 But more than any other feeling at this meeting rose the tide of fellowship for one another. Maxwell watched it, trembling for its climax, which he knew was not yet reached. When it was, where would it lead them? He did not know, but he was not unduly alarmed by it. Only he watched with growing wonder the results of that simple promise as it was being obeyed in these various lives. Those results were already being felt all over the city. Who could measure their influence at the end of a year? One practical form of this fellowship showed itself in the assurances which Edward Norman received of support for his paper. There was a general flocking toward him when the meeting closed and the response to his appeal for help from the Christian disciples in Raymond was fully understood by this little company. The value of such a paper in the homes and in behalf of good citizenship, especially at the present crisis in the city, could not be measured. It remained to be seen what could be done now that the paper was endowed so liberally. 
But it still was true, as Norman insisted, that money alone could not make the paper a power. It must receive the support and sympathy of the Christians and Raymond before it could be counted as one of the great forces of the city. The week that followed the Sunday meeting was one of great excitement in Raymond. It was the week of the election. President Marsh, true to his promise, took up his cross and bore it manfully, but with shuddering, with groans, and even tears, for his deepest conviction was touched, and he tore himself out of the scholarly seclusion of years with a pain and anguish that cost him more than anything he had ever done as a follower of Christ. With him were a few of the college professors who had made the pledge in the first church. Their experience and suffering were the same as his, for their isolation from all the duties of citizenship had been the same. The same was also true of Henry Maxwell, who plunged into the horror of this fight against whiskey and its allies with a sickening dread of each day's new encounter with it. For never before had he borne such a cross. He staggered under it, and in the brief intervals when he came in from the work and sought the quiet of his study for rest, the sweat broke out on his forehead and he felt the actual terror of one who marches into unseen, unknown horrors. Looking back on it afterwards, he was amazed at his experience. He was not a coward, but he felt the dread that any man of his habits feels when confronted suddenly with a duty which carries with it the doing of certain things so unfamiliar that the actual details connected with it betray his ignorance and fill him with the shame of humiliation. When Saturday, the election day, came, the excitement rose to its height. An attempt was made to close all the saloons. It was only partly successful. There was a great deal of drinking going on all day. The rectangle boiled and heaved and cursed and turned its worst side out to the gaze of the city. Gray had continued his meetings during the week, and the results had been even greater than he had dared to hope. When Saturday came, it seemed to him that the crisis in his work had been reached. The Holy Spirit and the Satan of Rum seemed to rouse up a desperate conflict. The more interest in the meetings, the more ferocity and vileness outside. The saloon men no longer concealed their feelings. Open threats of violence were made. Once during the week, Gray and his little company of helpers were assailed with missiles of various kinds as they left the tent late at night. The police sent down a special force, and Virginia and Rachel were always under the protection of either Roland or Dr. West. Rachel's power and song had not diminished. Rather, with each night, it seemed to add to the intensity and reality of the spirit's presence. Gray had, at first, hesitated about having a meeting that night, but he had a simple rule of action and was always guided by it. The spirit seemed to lead him to continue the meeting, and so, Saturday night, he went on as usual. The excitement all over the city had reached its climax when the polls closed at six o'clock. Never before had there been such a contest in Raymond. The issue of license or no license had never been an issue under such circumstances. Never before had such elements in the city been arrayed against each other. It was an unheard of thing that the president of Lincoln College, the pastor of the First Church, the dean of the cathedral, the professional men living in fine houses on the boulevard, should come personally into the wards and by their presence and their example represent the Christian conscience of the place. The ward politicians were astonished at the sight. However, their astonishment did not prevent their activity. The fight grew hotter every hour, and when six o'clock came, 
Neither side could have guessed the result with any certainty. Everyone agreed that never before had there been such an election in Raymond, and both sides awaited the announcement of the result with the greatest interest. It was after ten o'clock when the meeting at the tent was closed. It had been a strange and, in some respects, a remarkable meeting. Maxwell had come down again at Gray's request. He was completely worn out by the day's work, but the appeal from Gray came to him in such a form that he did not feel able to resist it. President Marsh was also present. He had never been to the rectangle, and his curiosity was roused from what he had noticed of the influence of the evangelist in the worst part of the city. Dr. Weston Rowland had come with Rachel and Virginia, and Lorene, who still stayed with Virginia, was present near the organ, in her right mind, sober, with a humility and dread of herself that kept her as close to Virginia as a faithful dog. All through this service she sat with bowed head, weeping a part of the time, sobbing when Rachel sang the song, I was a wandering sheep clinging with almost visible, tangible yearning to the one hope she had found, listening to prayer and appeal and confession all around her, like one who was a part of a new creation, yet fearful of her right to share in it fully. The tent had been crowded. As on some other occasions, there was more or less disturbance on the outside. This had increased as the night advanced, and Gray thought it wise not to prolong the service. Once in a while, a shout as from a large crowd swept into the tent. The returns from the election were beginning to come in, and the rectangle had emptied every lodging house, den, and hovel into the streets. In spite of these distractions, Rachel's singing kept the crowd in the tent from dissolving. There were a dozen or more so conversions. Finally, the people became restless, and Gray closed the service, remaining a little while with the converts. Rachel, Virginia, Laureen, Roland, and the doctor, President March, Mr. Maxwell, and Dr. West went out together, intending to go down to the usual waiting place for their car. As they came out of the tent, they were at once aware that the rectangle was trembling on the verge of a drunken riot, and as they pushed through the gathering mobs in the narrow streets, they began to realize that they themselves were the object of great attention. There he is, the bloke in the tall hat. He's the leader, shouted a rough voice. President Marsh, with his erect, commanding figure, was conspicuous in the little company. How has the election gone? It is too early to know the result yet, isn't it? He asked the question aloud, and a man answered. They say second and third wards have gone almost solid for no license. If that is so... The whiskey men have been beaten. Thank God! I hope it is true, exclaimed Maxwell. Marsh, we are in danger here. Do you realize our situation? We ought to get the ladies to a place of safety. This is true, said Marsh gravely. At that moment, a shower of stones and other missiles fell over them. The narrow street and sidewalk in front of them was completely choked with the worst elements of the rectangle. This looks serious, said Maxwell. With Marsh and Roland and Dr. West, he started to go forward through a small opening. Virginia, Rachel, and Laureen followed close and sheltered by the men who now realized something of their danger. The rectangle was drunk and enraged. It saw in Marsh and Maxwell two of the leaders in the election contest which had, perhaps, robbed them of their beloved saloon. 
Down with the aristocrats, shouted a shrill voice, more like a woman's than a man's. A shower of mud and stones followed. Rachel remembered afterwards that Roland jumped directly in front of her and received on his head and chest a number of blows that would have struck her if he had not shielded her from them. And just then, before the police reached them, Maureen darted forward in front of Virginia and pushed her aside, looking up and screaming. It was so sudden that no one had time to catch the face of the one who did it. But out of the upper window of a room, over the very saloon where Lorene had come out a week before, someone had thrown a heavy bottle. It struck Lorene on the head, and she fell to the ground. Virginia turned and instantly kneeled down by her. The police officers by that time had reached the little company. President Marsh raised his arm and shouted over the howl that was beginning to rise from the wild beast in the mob. Stop! You've killed a woman! The announcement partly sobered the crowd. Is it true? Maxwell asked it as Dr. West kneeled on the other side of Lorene, supporting her. She's dying, said Dr. West briefly. Lorene opened her eyes and smiled at Virginia, who wiped the blood from her face and then bent over and kissed her. Lorene smiled again, and the next minute, her soul was in paradise. In His Steps, Chapter 15 He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. The body of Lorene lay in state at the Page Mansion on the avenue. It was Sunday morning, and the clear, sweet spring air, just beginning to breathe over the city the perfume of early blossoms in the woods and fields, swept over the casket from one of the open windows at the end of the Grand Hall. The church bells were ringing, and people on the avenue going by to service turned curious, inquiring looks up at the great house, and then went on, talking of the recent events which had so strangely entered into and made history in the city. At the first church, Mr. Maxwell, bearing on his face marks of the scene he had been through, confronted an immense congregation, and spoke to it with a passion and a power that came so naturally out of the profound experiences of the day before that his people felt for him something of the old feeling of pride they had once had in his dramatic delivery. Only this was with a different attitude, and all through his impassioned appeal this morning there was a note of sadness and rebuke and stern condemnation that made many of the members pale with self-accusation or with inward anger. For Raymond had awakened that morning to the fact that the city had gone for license after all. The rumor at the rectangle that the second and third wards had gone no license proved to be false. It was true that the victory was won by a very meager majority, but the result was the same as if it had been overwhelming. Raymond had voted to continue for another year the saloon. The Christians of Raymond stood condemned by the result. More than a hundred professing Christian disciples had failed to go to the polls, and many more than that number had voted with the whiskey men. If all the church members of Raymond had voted against the saloon, it would today be outlawed instead of crowned king of the municipality, for that had been the fact in Raymond for years. The saloon ruled. No one denied that. What would Jesus do? And this woman, who had been brutally struck down by the very hand that had assisted so eagerly to work her earthly ruin, what of her? Was it anything more than the logical sequence of the whole horrible system of license that for another year the very saloon that had received her so often encompassed her degradation, from whose very spot the weapon had been hurled that struck her dead, would, by the law which the Christian people of Raymond voted to support, 
perhaps open its doors tomorrow and damn a hundred Lorenes before the year had drawn into its bloody close. All this, with a voice that rang and trembled and broken sobs of anguish for the result, did Henry Maxwell pour out upon his people that Sunday morning. And men and women wept as he spoke. President Marsh sat there, his usual erect, handsome, firm, bright, self-confident bearing all gone. His head bowed upon his breast, the great tears rolling down his cheeks, unmindful of the fact that never before had he shown outward emotion in a public service. Edward Norman, nearby, sat with his clear-cut, keen face erect, but his lip trembled, and he clutched the end of the pew with a feeling of emotion that struck deep into his knowledge of the truth as Maxwell spoke it. No man had given or suffered more to influence public opinion that week than Norman. The thought that the Christian conscience had been aroused too late or too feebly lay with the weight of accusation upon the heart of the editor. What if he had begun to do as Jesus would have done long ago? Who could tell what might have been accomplished by this time? And up in the choir, Rachel Winslow, with her face bowed on the railing of the oak screen, gave way to a feeling which she had not allowed yet to master her. But it so unfitted her for her part that when Mr. Maxwell finished and she tried to sing the closing solo after the prayer, her voice broke, and for the first time in her life, she was obliged to sit down, sobbing, and unable to go on. Over the church, in the silence that followed this strange scene, sobs and the noise of weeping arose. When had the first church yielded to such a baptism of tears? What had become of its regular, precise, conventional order of service, undisturbed by any vulgar emotion and unmoved by any foolish excitement? But the people had lately had their deepest convictions touched. They had been living so long on their surface feelings that they had almost forgotten the deeper wells of life. Now that they had broken the surface, the people were convicted of the meaning of their discipleship. Mr. Maxwell did not ask this morning for volunteers to join those who had already pledged to do as Jesus would. But when the congregation had finally gone and he had entered the lecture room, it needed but a glance to show him that the original company of followers had been largely increased. The meeting was tender. It glowed with the Spirit's presence. It was alive with strong and lasting resolve to begin a war on the whiskey power in Raymond that would break its reign forever. Since the first Sunday when the first company of volunteers had pledged themselves to do as Jesus would do, the different gatherings had been characterized by distinct impulses or impressions. Today, the entire force of the gathering seemed to be directed to this one large purpose. It was a meeting full of broken prayers of contrition, of confession, of strong yearning for a new and better city life. And all through it ran one general cry for deliverance from the saloon and its awful curse. But if the first church was deeply stirred by the events of the last week, the rectangle also felt moved strangely in its own way. The death of Lorene was not in itself so remarkable a fact. It was her recent acquaintance with the people from the city that lifted her into special prominence and surrounded her death with more than ordinary importance. Everyone in the rectangle knew that Laureen was at this moment lying in the Page Mansion up on the avenue. Exaggerated reports of the magnificence of the casket had already furnished material for eager gossip. The rectangle was excited to know the details of the funeral. Would it be public? What did Miss Page intend to do? 
The rectangle had never before mingled, even in this distant personal matter, with the aristocracy on the boulevard. The opportunities for doing so were not frequent. Gray and his wife were besieged by inquirers who wanted to know what Lorene's friends and acquaintances were expected to do in paying their last respects to her. For her acquaintance was large, and many of the recent converts were among her friends. So that is how it happened that Monday afternoon at the tent, the funeral service for Lorene was held before an immense audience that choked the tent and overflowed beyond all previous bounds. Gray had gone up to Virginia's and, after talking it over with her and Maxwell, the arrangements had been made. I am and always have been opposed to large public funerals, said Gray, whose complete wholesome simplicity of character was one of the great sources of his strength. But the cry of the poor creatures who knew Laureen is so earnest that I do not know how to refuse this desire to see her and pay her poor body some last little honor. What do you think, Mr. Maxwell? I will be guided by your judgment in the matter. I am sure that whatever you and Miss Page think best will be right. I feel as you do, replied Mr. Maxwell. Under the circumstances, I have a great distaste for what seems like display at such times. But this seems different. The people at the rectangle will not come here to service. I think the most Christian thing will be to let them have the service at the tent. Do you think so, Miss Virginia? Yes, said Virginia. Poor soul. I do not know, but that sometime I shall know she gave her life for mine. We certainly cannot and will not use the occasion for vulgar display. Let her friends be allowed the gratification of their wishes. I see no harm in it. So the arrangements were made, with some difficulty, for the service at the tent, and Virginia, with her uncle and Roland, accompanied by Maxwell, Rachel, and President Marsh, and the quartet from the First Church, went down and witnessed one of the strangest things of their lives. It happened that that afternoon a somewhat noted newspaper correspondent was passing through Raymond on his way to an editorial convention in a neighboring city. He heard of the contemplated service at the tent and went down. His description of it was written in a graphic style that caught the attention of very many readers the next day. A fragment of his account belongs to this part of the history of Raymond. There was a very unique and unusual funeral service held here this afternoon at the tent of the evangelist Reverend John Gray, down in the slum district known as the Rectangle. The occasion was caused by the killing of a woman during an election riot last Saturday night. It seems she had been recently converted during the evangelist meetings, and was killed while returning from one of the meetings in the company with other converts and some of her friends. She was a common street drunkard, and yet the services at the tent were as impressive as any I ever witnessed in a metropolitan church over the most distinguished citizen. In the first place, a most exquisite anthem was sung by a trained choir. It struck me, of course, being a stranger in the place, with considerable astonishment to hear voices like those one naturally expects to hear only in great churches or concerts at such a meeting as this. But the most remarkable part of the music was a solo sung by a strikingly beautiful young woman, a Miss Winslow, who, if I remember right, is the young singer who was sought for by Crandall, the manager of the National Opera, and who, for some reason, refused to accept his offer to go on the stage. She had a most wonderful manner in singing, and everyone was weeping before she had sung a dozen words. 
That, of course, is not so strange an effect to be produced at a funeral service, but the voice itself was one of thousands. I understand Miss Winslow sings in the First Church of Raymond and could probably command almost any salary as a public singer. She will probably be heard from soon. Such a voice could win its way anywhere. The service, aside from the singing, was peculiar. The evangelist, a man of apparently very simple, unassuming style, spoke a few words, and he was followed by a fine-looking man, the Reverend Henry Maxwell, pastor of the First Church of Raymond. Mr. Maxwell spoke of the fact that the dead woman had been fully prepared to go, but he spoke in a peculiarly sensitive manner of the effect of the liquor business on the lives of men and women like this one. Raymond, of course, being a railroad town and the center of the great packing interests of this region, is full of saloons. I caught from the minister's remarks that he had only recently changed his views in regard to license. He certainly made a very striking address, and yet it was in no sense inappropriate for a funeral. Then followed what was perhaps the queer part of this strange service. The women in the tent, at least a large part of them up near the coffin, began to sing in a soft, tearful way. I was a wandering sheep. Then, while the singing was going on, one row of women stood up and walked slowly past the casket, and as they went by, each one placed a flower of some kind upon it. Then they sat down, and another row filed past, leaving their flowers. All the time the singing continued softly, like rain on a tent cover, when the wind is gentle. It was one of the simplest and at the same time one of the most impressive sights I ever witnessed. The sides of the tent were up, and hundreds of people who could not get in stood outside, all as still as death itself, with wonderful sadness and solemnity for such rough-looking people. There must have been a hundred of these women— and I was told many of them had been converted at the meetings just recently. I cannot describe the effect of that singing. Not a man sang a note. All women's voices, and so soft, and yet so distinct, and the effect was startling. The service closed with another solo by Miss Winslow, who sang, There were ninety and nine, and the evangelist asked them all to bow their head while he prayed. I was obliged, in order to catch my train, to leave during the prayer, and the last view I caught of the service as the train went by the shops was a sight of the great crowd pouring out of the tent and forming in open ranks while the coffin was borne out by six of the women. It is a long time since I have seen such a picture in this unpoetic republic. If Lorraine's funeral impressed a passing stranger like this, it is not difficult to imagine the profound feelings of those who had been so intimately connected with her life and death. Nothing had ever entered the rectangle that had moved it so deeply as Lorene's body in that coffin, and the Holy Spirit seemed to bless with special power the use of this senseless clay. For that night he swept more than a score of lost souls, mostly women, into the fold of the Good Shepherd. From Christianity Today, this is Mike Cosper. I'm the director of CT Media and one of the hosts of The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. 
Each week on The Bulletin, we bring in a variety of guests for conversations about the most important questions Christians are asking. Our hope is to encourage the church to live with a faithful presence in a fallen world and to cut through the polarizing noise that's dividing not just the church, but the communities around us. New episodes of The Bulletin come out every Friday, so subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. In His Steps, Chapter 16 No one in all Raymond, including the rectangle, felt Lorene's death more keenly than Virginia. It came like a distinct personal loss to her. That short week while the girl had been in her home had opened Virginia's heart to a new life. She was talking it over with Rachel the day after the funeral. They were sitting in the hall of the Page Mansion. I'm going to do something with my money to help those women to a better life. Virginia looked over to the end of the hall where, the day before, Lorene's body had lain. I have decided on a good plan, as it seems to me. I have talked it over with Roland. He will devote a large part of his money also to the same plan. How much money have you, Virginia, to give in this way? asked Rachel. Once, she would never have asked such a personal question. Now it seemed as natural to talk frankly about money as about anything else that belonged to God. I have available for use at least $450,000. Roland has as much more. It is one of his bitter regrets now that his extravagant habits of life before his conversion practically threw away half that father left him. We are both eager to make all the reparation in our power. What would Jesus do with this money? We want to answer that question honestly and wisely. The money I shall put into the news is, I am confident, in a line with his probable action. It is as necessary that we have a Christian daily paper in Raymond, especially now that we have the saloon influence to meet, as it is to have a church or a college. So I am satisfied that the $500,000 that Mr. Norman will know how to use so well will be a powerful factor in Raymond to do as Jesus would. About my other plan, Rachel, I want you to work with me. Roll and I are going to buy up a large part of the property in the rectangle. The field where the tent now is has been in litigation for years. We mean to secure the entire tract as soon as the courts have settled the title. For some time, I have been making a special study of the various forms of college settlements and resident methods of Christian work and institutional church work in the heart of the great city slums. I do not know that I have yet been able to tell just what is the wisest and most effective kind of work that can be done in Raymond, but I do know this much. My money, I mean God's, which he wants me to use, can build wholesome lodging houses, refuges for poor women, asylum for shop girls, safety for many and many a lost girl like Laureen. And I do not want to be simply a dispenser of his money. God help me. I do not want to put myself into the problem. But you know, Rachel, I have a feeling all the time that all this limitless money and limitless personal sacrifice can possibly do will not really lessen very much the awful condition at the rectangle as long as the saloon is legally established there. I think that it is truer of any Christian work now being carried on in any great city. The saloon furnishes material to be saved, 
faster than the settlement or residence or rescue mission can save it. Virginia suddenly rose and paced the hall. Rachel answered sadly, and yet with a note of hope in her voice. It is true, but Virginia, what a wonderful amount of good can be done with this money, and the saloon cannot always remain here. The time must come when the Christian forces in the city will triumph. Virginia paused near Rachel, and her pale, earnest face lit up. I believe that, too. The number of those who have promised to do as Jesus would is increasing. If we once have, say, 500 such disciples in Raymond, the saloon is doomed. But now, dear, I want you to look at your part in this plan for capturing and saving the rectangle. Your voice is a power. I have had many ideas lately. Here's one of them. You could organize among the girls a musical institute. Give them the benefit of your training. There are some splendid voices in the rough there. Did anyone ever hear such singing as that yesterday by those women? Rachel, what a beautiful opportunity. We shall have the best of material in the way of organs and orchestras that money can provide. And what cannot be done with music to win souls there into higher and purer and better living? Before Rachel had ceased speaking, Rachel's face was perfectly transformed with the thought of her life's work. It flowed into her heart and mind like a flood, and the torrent of her feeling overflowed into tears that could not be restrained. It was what she had dreamed of doing herself. It represented to her something that she felt was in keeping with a right use of her talent. Yes, she said, as she rose and put her arm around Virginia, while both girls, in excitement of their enthusiasm, paced the hall. Yes, I will gladly put my life into that kind of service. I do believe that Jesus would have me use my life in this way. Virginia, what miracles can we not accomplish in humanity if we have such a lever as consecrated money to move things with? Add to it consecrated personal enthusiasm like yours, and it certainly can accomplish great things, said Virginia, smiling. And before Rachel could reply, Roland came in. He hesitated for a moment, and then was passing out of the hall into the library when Virginia called him back and asked some questions about his work. Roland came back and sat down, and together the three discussed their future plans. Roland was apparently entirely free from embarrassment in Rachel's presence while Virginia was with him. Only his manner with her was almost precise, if not cold. The past seemed to have been entirely absorbed in his wonderful conversation. He had not forgotten it, but he seemed to be completely caught up for this present time in the purpose of his new life. After a while, Roland was called out, and Rachel and Virginia began to talk of other things. By the way, what has become of Jasper Chase? Virginia asked the question innocently, but Rachel flushed, and Virginia added with a smile, I suppose he is writing another book. Is he going to put you in this one, Rachel? You know I always suspected Jasper Chase of doing that very thing in his first story. Virginia? Rachel spoke with the frankness that had always existed between the two friends. Jasper Chase told me the other night that he, in fact, he proposed to me. Or he would if... Rachel stopped and sat with her hands clasped in her lap, and there were tears in her eyes. Virginia, I thought a little while ago I loved him, as he said he loved me. But when he spoke, my heart felt repelled, and I said what I ought to say. 
I told him no. I have not seen him since. That was the night of the first conversions at the rectangle. I am glad for you, said Virginia quietly. Why? asked Rachel, a little startled. Because I have never really liked Jasper Chase. He is too cold, and I do not like to judge him, but I have always distrusted his sincerity in taking the pledge of the church with the rest. Rachel looked at Virginia thoughtfully. I have never given my heart to him, I am sure. He touched my emotions, and I admired his skill as a writer. I have thought at times that I cared a good deal for him. I think perhaps if he had spoken to me at any other time than the one he chose, I could easily have persuaded myself that I loved him. But not now. Again, Rachel paused suddenly, and when she looked up at Virginia again, there were tears on her face. Virginia came to her and put her arm around her tenderly. When Rachel had left the house, Virginia sat in the hall thinking over the confidence her friend had just shown her. There was something still to be told. Virginia felt sure from Rachel's manner, but she did not feel hurt that Rachel had kept back something. She was simply conscious of more on Rachel's mind than she had revealed. Very soon, Roland came back, and he and Virginia, arm in arm as they had lately been in the habit of doing, walked up and down the long hall. It was easy for their talk to settle finally upon Rachel because of the place she was to occupy in the plans which were being made for the purchase of property at the rectangle. Did you ever know of a girl of such really gifted powers in vocal music who was willing to give her life to the people as Rachel is going to do? She's going to give music lessons in the city, have private pupils to make her living, and then give the people in the rectangle the benefit of her culture and her voice. It is certainly a very good example of self-sacrifice, replied Roland a little stiffly. Virginia looked at him a little sharply. But don't you think it is a very unusual example? Can you imagine? Here Virginia named half a dozen famous opera singers. Doing anything of the sort? No, I cannot, Roland answered briefly. Neither can I imagine Miss... He spoke the name of the girl with a red parasol who had begged Virginia to take the girls to the rectangle. Doing what you are doing, Virginia? Any more than I can imagine, Mr. Virginia spoke the name of a young society leader, going about to the clubs doing your work, Roland. The two walked on in silence for the length of the hall. Come back to Rachel, began Virginia. Roland, why do you treat her with such a distant, precise manner? I think, Roland, pardon me if I hurt you, that she is annoyed by it. You need to be on easy terms. I don't think Rachel likes this change. Roland suddenly stopped. He seemed deeply agitated. He took his arm from Virginia's and walked alone to the end of the hall. Then he returned with his hands behind him and stooped near his sister and said, Virginia, have you not learned my secret? Virginia looked bewildered. Then, over her face, the unusual color crept, showing that she understood. I have never loved anyone but Rachel Winslow. Roland spoke calmly enough now. That day she was here when you asked about her refusal to join the concert company, I asked her to be my wife, out there on the avenue. She refused me, as I knew she would and she gave as her reason the fact that I had no purpose in life, which was true enough. Now that I have a purpose, now that I am a new man, 
Don't you see, Virginia, how impossible it is for me to say anything? I owe my very conversion to Rachel's singing. And yet that night when she sang, I can honestly say, for the time being, I never thought of her voice except as God's message. I believe that my personal love for her was, for the time, merged into a personal love to my God and my Savior. Rachel was silent. Then he went on with more emotion. I still love her, Virginia, but I do not think she ever could love me. He stopped and looked his sister in the face with a sad smile. I don't know about that, said Virginia to herself. She was noting Roland's handsome face, his marks of dissipation nearly all gone now. The firm lips showed manhood and courage, the clear eyes looking into hers frankly, the form strong and graceful. Roland was a man now. Why should not Rachel come to love him in time? Surely the two were well fitted for each other, especially now that their purpose in life was moved by the same Christian force. In His Steps, Chapter 17 The next day she went down to the news office to see Edward Norman and arrange the details of her part in the establishment of the paper on its new foundation. Mr. Maxwell was present at this conference, and the three agreed that whatever Jesus would do in detail as editor of the daily paper, he would be guided by the same general principles that directed his conduct as the savior of the world. I have tried to put down here in concrete form some of the things that it has seemed to me Jesus would do, said Edward Norman. He'd read from a paper lying on his desk, and Maxwell was reminded again of his own effort to put into written form his own conception of Jesus's probable action, and also of Milton Wright's same attempt in his business. I have headed this, what would Jesus do as Edward Norman, editor of a daily newspaper in Raymond? Number one, he would never allow a sentence or a picture in his paper that would be called bad or coarse or impure in any way. Number two, he would probably conduct the political part of the paper from the standpoint of nonpartisan patriotism, always looking upon all political questions in the light of their relation to the kingdom of God and advocating measures from the standpoint of their relation to the welfare of the people, always on the basis of what is right, never on the basis of what is the best interests of this or that party. In other words, he would treat all political questions as he would treat every other subject, from the standpoint of the advancement of the kingdom of God on earth. Edward Norman looked up from the reading a moment. You understand that this is my opinion of Jesus' probable action on political matters in a daily paper. I am not passing judgment on other newspaper men who may have a different conception of Jesus' probable action from mine. I am simply trying to answer honestly, what would Jesus do as Edward Norman? And the answer I find is what I have put down. Number three. The end and aim of a daily paper conducted by Jesus would be to do the will of God. That is... His main purpose in carrying on a newspaper would not be to make money or gain political influence, but his first and ruling purpose would be to so conduct his paper that it would be evident to all his subscribers that he was trying to seek first the kingdom of God by means of his paper. This purpose would be distinct as unquestioned as the purpose of a minister or a missionary or any unselfish martyr in Christian work anywhere. Number four. All questionable advertisements would be impossible. 
Number five, the relations of Jesus to the employees of the paper would be of the most loving character. So far as I have gone, said Norman, looking up again, I am of opinion that Jesus would employ practically some form of cooperation that would represent the idea of a mutual interest in a business where all were to move together for the same great end. I am working out such a plan, and I am confident that it will be successful. At any rate, once having introduced the element of personal love into a business like this, take out the selfish principle of doing it for personal profits to a man or company, and I do not see any way except the most loving personal interest between editors, reporters, pressmen, and all who contribute anything to the life of the paper. And that interest would be expressed not only in the personal love and sympathy, but in a sharing with the profits of the business. 6. As editor of a daily paper today, Jesus would give large space to the work of the Christian world. He would devote a page possibly to the facts of reform, of sociological problems, of institutional church work, and similar movements. Number 7. He would do all in his power in his paper to fight the saloon as an enemy of the human race and an unnecessary part of our civilization. He would do this regardless of public sentiment in the matter and, of course, always regardless of its effect upon his subscription list. Again, Edward Norman looked up. I state my honest convictions on this point. Of course, I do not pass judgment on the Christian men who are editing other kinds of papers today. But as I interpret Jesus, I believe he would use the influence of his paper to remove the saloon entirely from the political and social life of the nation. Number eight, Jesus would not issue a Sunday edition. Number nine, he would print the news of the world that people ought to know. Among the things they do not need to know, and which would not be published, would be accounts of brutal prize fights, long accounts of crimes, scandals in private families, or any other human event which in any way would conflict with the first point mentioned in this outline. Number 10. If Jesus had the amount of money to use on a paper which we have, he would probably secure the best and strongest Christian men and women to cooperate with him in the manner of contributions. That will be my purpose, as I shall be able to show you in a few days. Number 11. Whatever the details of the paper might demand as the paper developed along its definite plan, the main principle that guided it would always be the establishment of the kingdom of God in the world. This large general principle would necessarily shape all the detail. Edward Dorman finished reading the plan. He was very thoughtful. I have merely sketched a faint outline. I have a hundred ideas for making the paper powerful that I have not thought out fully as yet. This is simply suggestive. I have talked it over with the other newspaper men. Some of them say I will have a weak, namby-pamby Sunday school sheet. If I get out something as good as a Sunday school, it will be pretty good. Why do men, when they want to characterize something as particularly feeble, always use a Sunday school as a comparison, when they ought to know that the Sunday school is one of the strongest, most powerful influences in our civilization in this country today? But the paper will not necessarily be weak because it is good. Good things are more powerful than bad. The question with me is largely one of support from the Christian people of Raymond. There are over 20,000 church members here in this city. 
If half of them will stand by the news, its life is assured. What do you think, Maxwell, of the probability of such support? I don't know enough about it to give an intelligent answer. I believe in the paper with all my heart. If it lives a year, as Miss Virginia said, there is no telling what it can do. The great thing will be to issue such a paper, as near as we can judge, as Jesus probably would, and put into it all the elements of Christian brains, strength, intelligence, and sense, and command respect for freedom from bigotry, fanaticism, narrowness, and anything else that is contrary to the spirit of Jesus. Such a paper will call for the best that human thought and action is capable of giving. The greatest minds in the world would have their powers taxed the utmost to issue a Christian daily. Yes, Edward Norman spoke humbly. I shall make a great many mistakes, no doubt. I need a great deal of wisdom, but I want to do as Jesus would. What would he do? I have asked it and shall continue to do so and abide by the results. I think we are beginning to understand, said Virginia, the meaning of the command, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I am sure I do not know all that he would do in detail until I know him better. That is very true, said Henry Maxwell. I am beginning to understand that I cannot interpret the probable action of Jesus until I know better what his spirit is. The greatest question in all of human life is summed up when we ask, what would Jesus do if, as we ask it, we also try to answer it from a growth in knowledge of Jesus himself? We must know Jesus before we can imitate him. When the arrangement had been made between Virginia and Edward Norman, he found himself in possession of the sum of $500,000 to use for the establishment of a Christian daily paper. When Virginia and Maxwell had gone, Maxwell closed his door alone with the Divine Presence, asked like a child for help from his all-powerful father. All through his prayer as he kneeled before his desk ran the promise, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Surely his prayer would be answered, and the kingdom advanced through this instrument of God's power, this mighty press, which had become so largely degraded to the base uses of man's avarice and ambition. Two months went by. They were full of action and of results in the city of Raymond, and especially in the first church. In spite of the approaching heat of the summer season, the after-meeting of the disciples who had made the pledge to do as Jesus would do continued with enthusiasm and power. Gray had finished his work at the rectangle, and an outward observer going through the place could not have seen any difference in the old conditions, although there was an actual change in hundreds of lives. But the saloons, dens, hovels, gambling houses still ran, overflowing their vileness into the lives of fresh victims to take the place of those rescued by the evangelist. And the devil recruited his ranks very fast. Henry Maxwell did not go abroad. Instead of that, he took the money he had been saving for the trip and quietly arranged for a summer vacation for a whole family living down in the rectangle who had never gone outside of the foul district of the tenements. The pastor of the first church will never forget the week he spent with his family making the arrangements. He went down into the rectangle one hot day when something of the terrible heat in the horrible tenements was beginning to be felt, and helped the family to the station, and then went with them to a beautiful spot on the coast where, in the home of a Christian woman, the bewildered city tenants breathed for the first time in years the cool salt air 
and felt blow about them the pine-scented fragrance of a new lease of life. There was a sickly babe with the mother, and three other children, one a cripple. The father, who had been out of work until he'd been, as he afterwards confessed to Maxwell, several times in the edge of suicide, sat with the baby in his arms during the journey. And when Maxwell started back to Raymond, after seeing the family settled, the man held his hand at parting, and choked with his utterance, and finally broke down, to Maxwell's great confusion. The mother, a wearied, worn-out woman who had lost three children the year before from a fever scourge in the rectangle, sat by the car window all the way, and drank in the delights of sea and sky and field. It all seemed a miracle to her. And Maxwell, coming back into Raymond at the end of the week, feeling the scorching, sickening heat all the more because of his little taste of the ocean breezes, thanked God for the joy he had witnessed, and entered upon his discipleship with a humble heart, knowing for almost the first time in his life this special kind of sacrifice. For never before had he denied himself his regular summer trip away from the heat of Raymond, whether he felt in any great need of rest or not. It is a fact, he said in reply to several inquiries on the part of his church, I do not feel in need of a vacation this year. I am very well and prefer to stay here. It was with a feeling of relief that he succeeded in concealing from everyone but his wife what he had done with this other family. He felt the need of doing anything of that sort without display or approval from others. So the summer came on, and Maxwell grew into a large knowledge of his Lord. The first church was still swayed by the power of the Spirit. Maxwell marveled at the continuance of his sway. He knew very well from the beginning nothing but the Spirit's presence had kept the church from being torn asunder by the remarkable testing it had received from its discipleship. Even now, there were many of the members among those who had not taken the pledge, who regarded the whole movement as Mrs. Winslow did, in the nature of a fanatical interpretation of Christian duty, and looked for the return of the old normal condition. Meanwhile, the whole body of disciples was under the influence of the Spirit, and the pastor went his way that summer, doing his parish work in great joy, keeping up his meetings with the railroad men as he had promised Alexander Powers and daily growing into a better knowledge of the master. Early one afternoon in August, after a day of refreshing coolness followed a long period of heat, Jasper Chase walked to his window in the apartment house on the avenue and looked out. On his desk lay a pile of manuscript. Since that evening when he had spoken to Rachel Winslow, he had not met her. His singularly sensitive nature, sensitive to the point of extreme irritability when he was thwarted, served to thrust him into an isolation that was intensified by his habits as an author. All through the heat of summer he had been writing. His book was nearly done now. He had thrown himself into its construction with a feverish strength that threatened at any moment to desert him and leave him helpless. He had not forgotten his pledge made with the other church members at the First Church. It had forced itself upon his notice all through his writing, and ever since Rachel had said no to him, he had asked a thousand times, would Jesus do this? Would he write this story? It was a social novel, written in a style that proved popular. It had no purpose except to amuse. Its moral teaching was not bad, but neither was it Christian in any positive way. Jasper Chase knew that such a story would probably sell, he was conscious of powers in this way that the social world petted and admired. 
What would Jesus do? He felt that Jesus would never write such a book. The question intruded in him at the most inopportune times. He became irascible over it. The standard of Jesus for an author was too ideal. Of course, Jesus would use his powers to produce something useful or helpful, or with a purpose. What was he, Jasper Chase, writing this novel for? Why, what nearly every writer wrote for? Money and fame as a writer. There was no secret with him that he was writing this new story with that object. He was not poor, and so had no great temptation to write for money. But he was urged on by his desire for fame as much as anything. He must write this kind of matter. But what would Jesus do? The question plagued him even more than Rachel's refusal. Was he going to break his promise? Did the promise mean much after all, he asked. As he stood at the window, Roland Page came out of the club just opposite. Jasper noted his handsome face and noble figure as he started down the street. He went back to his desk and turned over some papers there. Then he came back to the window. Roland was walking down past the block and Rachel Winslow was walking beside him. Roland must have overtaken her as she was coming from Virginia's that afternoon. Jasper watched the two figures until they disappeared in the crowd on the walk. Then he turned to his desk and began to write. When he'd finished the last page of the last chapter of his book, it was nearly dark. What would Jesus do? He'd finally answered the question by denying his Lord. It grew darker in his room. He had deliberately chosen his course, urged on by his disappointment and loss. In His Steps, Chapter 18 What is that to thee? Follow thou me. When Roland started down the street the afternoon that Jasper stood looking out of his window, he was not thinking of Rachel Winslow and did not expect to see her anywhere. He'd come suddenly upon her as he turned into the avenue and his heart had leapt up at the sight of her. He walked along by her now, rejoicing after all in a little moment of this earthly love he could not drive out of his life. I have just been over to see Virginia, said Rachel. She tells me the arrangements are nearly completed for the transfer of the rectangle property. Yes, it has been a tedious case in the courts. Did Virginia show you all the plans and specifications for the building? We looked over a good many. It is astonishing to me where Virginia has managed to get all her ideas about this work. Virginia knows more about Arnold Toynbee and East End London and institutional church work in America than a good many professional slum workers. She has been spending nearly all summer in getting information. Roland was beginning to feel more at ease as they talked over this coming work of humanity. It was safe, common ground. "'What have you been doing all summer? I've not seen much of you,' Rachel suddenly asked, and then her face warmed with its quick flush of tropical color as if she might have implied too much interest in Roland or too much regret at not seeing him oftener. "'I have been busy,' replied Roland briefly. "'Tell me something about it,' persisted Rachel. "'You say so little. Have I a right to ask?' She put the question very frankly, turning toward Roland in real earnest. Yes, certainly, he replied with a graceful smile. I am not so certain that I can tell you much. I have been trying to find some way to reach the men I once knew and win them into more useful lives. He stopped suddenly, as if he were almost afraid to go on. Virginia did not venture to suggest anything. I have been a member of the same company to which you and Virginia belong, continued Roland, beginning again. 
I have made the pledge to do as I believe Jesus would do, and it is in trying to answer this question that I have been doing my work. That is what I do not understand. Virginia told me about the other. It seems wonderful that you are trying to keep the pledge with us, but what can you do with the club men? You have asked me a direct question, and I shall have to answer it now, replied Roland, smiling again. You see, I asked myself after that night at the tent, you remember, he spoke hurriedly and his voice trembled a little, what purpose I could now have in my life to redeem it, to satisfy my thought of Christian discipleship. The more I thought of it, the more I was driven to a place where I knew I must take up the cross. Did you ever think that of all the neglected beings in our social system, none are quite so completely left alone as the young men who fill the clubs and waste their time and money as I used to? The churches look after the poor, miserable creatures like those in the rectangle. They make some effort to reach the working man. They have a large constituency among the average salary-earning people. They send money and missionaries to the foreign heathen. But the fashionable, dissipated young men around town, the club men, are left out of all plans for reaching and Christianizing. And yet no class of people need it more. I said to myself, I know these men. They are good in their bad qualities. I have been one of them. I am not fitted to reach the rectangle people. I do not know how, but I think I could possibly reach some of the men and boys who have money and time to spend. So that is what I've been trying to do. When I asked as you did, what would Jesus do? That was my answer. It has also been my cross. Roland's voice was so low on this last sentence that Rachel had difficulty in hearing him above the noise around him, but she knew what he had said. She wanted to ask what his methods were, but she did not know how to ask him. Her interest in his plan was larger than mere curiosity. Roland Page was so different now from the fashionable young man who had asked her to be his wife that she could not help thinking of him and talking with him as if he were an entirely new acquaintance. They had turned off the avenue and were going up the street to Rachel's home. It was the same street where Roland had asked Rachel why she could not love him. They were both stricken with a sudden shyness as they went on. Rachel had not forgotten that day, and Roland could not. She finally broke a long silence by asking what she had not found words for before. In your work with the club men, with your old acquaintances, what sort of reception do they give you? How do you approach them? What do they say? Roland was relieved when Rachel spoke. He answered quickly, Oh, it depends on the man. A good many of them think I am a crank. I have kept my membership up and am in good standing in that way. I try to be wise and not provoke any unnecessary criticism. But you would be surprised to know how many of the men have responded to my appeal. I could hardly make you believe that only a few nights ago, a dozen men became honestly and earnestly engaged in a conversation over religious matters. I have had the great joy of seeing some of the men give up bad habits and begin a new life. What would Jesus do? I keep asking it. The answer comes slowly, for I am feeling my way slowly. One thing I have found out, the men are not fighting shy of me. I think that is a good sign. Another thing, I have actually interested some of them in the rectangle work, and when it is started up, they will give something to help make it more powerful. And in addition to all the rest, I have found a way to save several of the young fellows from going to the bad in gambling. Roland spoke with enthusiasm. 
His face was transformed by his interest in the subject, which had now become a part of his real life. Rachel again noted the strong, manly tone in his speech. With it all, she knew there was a deep, underlying seriousness, which felt the burden of the cross even while carrying it with joy. The next time she spoke, it was with a swift feeling of justice due to Roland and his new life. Do you remember when I reproached you for not having any purpose worth living for? She asked, while her beautiful face seemed to Roland more beautiful than ever, when he had won sufficient self-control to look up. I want to say, I feel the need of saying, in justice to you now, that I honor you for your courage and your obedience to the promise you have made, as you interpret the promise. The life you are living is a noble one. Roland trembled. His agitation was greater than he could control. Rachel could not help seeing it. They walked along in silence. At last, Roland said, I thank you. It has been worth more to me than I can tell you to hear you say that. He looked into her face for one moment. She read his love for her in that look, but he did not speak. When they separated, Rachel went into the house and, sitting down in her room, she put her face in her hands and said to herself, I'm beginning to know what it means to be loved by a noble man. I shall love Roland Page after all. What am I saying? Rachel Winslow, have you forgotten? She rose and walked back and forth. She was deeply moved. Nevertheless, it was evident to herself that her emotion was not that of regret or sorrow. Somehow, a great new joy had come to her. She had entered another circle of experience, and later in the day, she rejoiced with a very strong and sincere gladness that her Christian discipleship found room in this crisis for her feeling. It was indeed a part of it. For if she was beginning to love Roland Page, it was the Christian man she had begun to love. The other never would have moved her to this great change. And Roland, as he went back, treasured a hope that had been a stranger to him since Rachel had said no that day. In that hope, he went on with his work as the days sped on, and at no time was he more successful in reaching and saving his old acquaintances than in the time that followed that chance meeting with Rachel Winslow. The summer had gone, and Raymond was once more facing the rigor of her winter season. Virginia had been able to accomplish a part of her plan for capturing the rectangle, as she called it. But the building of houses in the field, the transforming of its bleak, bare aspect into an attractive park, all of which was included in her plan, was a work too large to be completed that fall after she had secured the property. But a million dollars in the hands of a person who truly wants to do with it, as Jesus would, ought to accomplish wonders for humanity in a short time. And Henry Maxwell, going over to the scene of the new work one day after a noon hour with the shopmen, was amazed to see how much had been done outwardly. Yet he walked home thoughtfully, and on his way he could not avoid the question of the continual problem thrust upon his notice by the saloon. How much had been done for the rectangle after all? Even counting Virginia's and Rachel's work and Mr. Gray's, where had it actually counted in any visible quantity? Of course, he said to himself, the redemptive work begun and carried on by the Holy Spirit in his wondrous displays of power in the first church and in the tent meetings had had its effect upon the life of Raymond. But as he walked past saloon after saloon and noted the crowds going in and coming out of them, as he saw the wretched dens 
as many as ever apparently, as he caught the brutality and squalor and open misery and degradation on countless faces of men and women and children, he sickened at the sight. He found himself asking how much cleansing could a million dollars poured into this cesspool accomplish? Was not the living source of nearly all the human misery they sought to relieve untouched as long as the saloons did their deadly but legitimate work? What could even such unselfish Christian discipleship as Virginia's and Rachel's do to lessen the stream of vice and crime so long as the great spring of vice and crime flowed as deep and strong as ever? Was it not a practical waste of beautiful lives for these young women to throw themselves into this earthly hell when for every soul rescued by their sacrifice, the saloon made two more that needed rescue? He could not escape the question. It was the same that Virginia had put to Rachel in her statement that, in her opinion, nothing really permanent would ever be done until the saloon was taken out of the rectangle. Henry Maxwell went back to his parish work that afternoon with added convictions on the license business. But if the saloon was a factor in the problems of the life of Raymond, no less was the first church and its little company of disciples who had pledged to do as Jesus would do. Henry Maxwell, standing at the very center of the movement, was not in a position to judge of its power as someone from the outside might have done. But Raymond itself felt the touch in very many ways, not knowing all the reasons for the change. The winter was gone and the year was ended, the year which Henry Maxwell had fixed as the time during which the pledge should be kept to do as Jesus would do. Sunday, the anniversary of that one a year ago, was in many ways the most remarkable day that the First Church ever knew. It was more important than the disciples of the First Church realized. The year had made history so fast and so serious that the people were not yet able to grasp its significance. And the day itself, which marked the completion of a whole year of such discipleship, was characterized by such revelations and confessions that the immediate actors in the events themselves could not understand the value of what had been done, or the relation of their trial to the rest of the churches and cities of the country. In His Steps, Chapter 19 Letter from Rev. Calvin Bruce, D.D., of the Nazareth Avenue Church, Chicago, to Rev. Philip A. Caxton, D.D., New York City. My dear Caxton, it is late Sunday night, but I am so intensely awake and so overflowing with what I have seen and heard that I feel driven to write you now some account of the situation in Raymond, as I have been studying it, and as it has apparently come to a climax today. So this is my only excuse for writing so extended a letter at this time. You remember Henry Maxwell in the seminary. I think you said the last time I visited you in New York that you had not seen him since we graduated. He was a refined, scholarly fellow, you remember, but when he was called to the First Church of Raymond, within a year after leaving the seminary, I said to my wife, Raymond has made a good choice. Maxwell will satisfy them as a sermonizer. He has been here eleven years, and I understand that up to a year ago, he had gone on in the regular course of the ministry, giving good satisfaction and drawing good congregations. His church was counted the largest and wealthiest church in Raymond. All the best people attended it, 
and most of them belonged. The quartet choir was famous for its music, especially for its soprano, Miss Winslow, of whom I shall have more to say. And on the whole, as I understand the facts, Maxwell was in a comfortable berth, with a very good salary, pleasant surroundings, a not very exacting parish of refined, rich, respectable people, such a church and a parish as nearly all the young men of the seminary in our time looked forward to as very desirable. But a year ago today, Maxwell came into his church on Sunday morning, and at the close of the service, made the astonishing proposition that the members of his church volunteer for a year not to do anything without first asking the question, what would Jesus do? And after answering it, to do what in their honest judgment he would do, regardless of what the result might be to them. The effect of this proposition, as it has been met and obeyed by a number of members of the church, has been so remarkable that, as you know, the attention of the whole country has been directed to the movement. I call it a movement because, from the action taken today, it seems probable that what has been tried here will reach out into the other churches and cause a revolution in methods, but more especially in a new definition of Christian discipleship. In the first place, Maxwell tells me he was astonished at the response to his proposition. Some of the most prominent members in the church made the promise to do as Jesus would. Among them were Edward Norman, editor of the Daily News, which has made such a sensation in the newspaper world. Milton Wright, one of the leading merchants in Raymond. Alexander Powers, whose actions in the matter of the railroads against the interstate commerce laws made such a stir almost a year ago. Miss Page, one of Raymond's leading society heiresses, who has largely dedicated her entire fortune, as I understand, to the Christian daily paper and the work of reform in the slum district known as the Rectangle, and Miss Winslow, whose reputation as a singer is now national, but who, in obedience to what she has decided to be Christ's probable action, has devoted her talent to volunteer work among the girls and women who make up a large part of the city's worst and most abandoned population. In addition to these well-known people has been a gradually increasing number of Christians from the First Church, and lately from other churches of Raymond. A large proportion of these volunteers who pledge themselves to do as Jesus would do comes from the Endeavor Societies. The young people say they have already embodied in their social pledge the same principle in the words, I promise him that I will strive to do whatever he would have me do. This is not exactly what is included in Maxwell's proposition, which is that the disciple shall try to do what Jesus would probably do in the disciple's place. But the result of an honest obedience to either pledge, he claims, will be practically the same, and he is not surprised that the largest numbers have joined the new discipleship from the Endeavor Society. I am sure the first question you will ask is, what has been the result of this attempt? What has it accomplished, or how has it changed in any way the regular life of the church or the community? You already know something from reports of Raymond that have gone over the country, what the events have been, but one needs to come here and learn something of the changes in individual lives, and especially the change in the church life, to realize all that is meant by this following of Jesus' steps so literally. To tell all that would be to write a long story or series of stories. 
I am not in a position to do that, but I can give you some idea, perhaps, of what has been done as told me by friends here and by Maxwell himself. The result of the pledge upon the First Church has been twofold. It has brought upon a spirit of Christian fellowship which Maxwell tells me never before existed, and which now impresses him as being very nearly what the Christian fellowship of the apostolic churches must have been, and it has divided the church into two distinct groups of members. Those who have not taken the pledge regard the others as foolishly literal in their attempts to imitate the example of Jesus. Some of them have drawn out of the church and no longer attend, and they have removed their membership entirely to other churches. Some are an element of internal strife, and I heard rumors of an attempt on their part to force Maxwell's resignation. I do not know that this element is very strong in the church, and has been held in check by a wonderful continuance of spiritual power, which dates from the first Sunday that the pledge was taken a year ago, and also by the fact that so many of the most prominent members have been identified with the movement. The effect on Maxwell is very marked. I heard him preach in our state association four years ago. He impressed me at the time as having considerable power in dramatic delivery, of which he himself was somewhat conscious. His sermon was well-written and abounded in what seminary students used to call fine passages. The effect of it was what an average congregation would call pleasing. This morning, I heard Maxwell preach again for the first time since then. I shall speak of that farther on. He is not the same man. He gives me the impression of one who has passed through a crisis of revolution. He tells me this revolution is simply a new definition of Christian discipleship. He certainly has changed many of his old habits and many of his old views. His attitude on the saloon question is radically opposite to the one he entertained a year ago. And in his entire thought of the ministry, his pulpit and parish work, I find he has made a complete change. So far as I can understand, the idea that is moving him on now is the idea that the Christianity of our times must represent a more literal imitation of Jesus, and especially in the element of suffering. He quoted to me in the course of our conversation several times the verse in Peter, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, that ye would follow his steps." And he seemed filled with the conviction that what our churches need today, more than anything else, is this factor of joyful suffering for Jesus in some form. I do not know as I agree with him altogether, but, my dear Caxton, it is certainly astonishing to note the results of this idea as they have impressed themselves upon this city and this church. You ask, how about the results on the individuals who have made this pledge and honestly tried to be true to it. Those results are, as I have said, a part of individual history and cannot be told in detail. Some of them I can give you so that you may see this form of discipleship is not merely sentiment or fine posing for effect. For instance, take the case of Mr. Powers, who was superintendent of the machine shops of the L and TRR here. When he acted upon the evidence which incriminated the road, he lost his position. And more than that, I learned from his friends here, his family and social relations have become so changed that he and his family no longer appear in public. They have dropped out of the social circle where they were once so prominent. 
By the way, Caxton, I understand in this connection that the Commission, for one reason or another, postponed action on this case, and it is now rumored that the L and TRR will pass into a receiver's hands very soon. The president of the road, who, according to the evidence submitted by Powers, was the principal offender, has resigned, and complications which have risen since point to the receivership. Meanwhile, the superintendent has gone back to his old work as a telegraph operator. I met him at the church yesterday. He impressed me as a man who had, like Maxwell, gone through a crisis in character. I could not help thinking of him as being good material for the church of the first century, when the disciples had all things in common. Or take the case of Mr. Norman, editor of the Daily News. He risked his entire fortune in obedience to that which he believed was Jesus' action, and revolutionized his entire conduct of the paper at the risk of a failure. I send you a copy of yesterday's paper. I want you to read it carefully. To my mind, it is one of the most interesting and remarkable papers ever printed in the United States. It is open to criticism. But what could any mere man attempt in this line that would be free from criticism? Take it all in all, it is so far above the ordinary conception of a daily paper that I am amazed at the result. He tells me that the paper is beginning to be read more and more by the Christian people of the city. He was very confident of its final success. Read his editorial on the money questions. Also the one on the coming election in Raymond, where the question of license will again be an issue. Both articles are of the best from his point of view. He says he never begins an editorial, or in fact any part of his newspaper work, without asking, what would Jesus do? The result is certainly apparent. Then there is Milton Wright, the merchant. He has, I am told, so revolutionized his business that no man is more beloved today in Raymond. His own clerks and employees have an affection for him that is very touching. During the winter, while he was lying dangerously ill at his home, scores of clerks volunteered to watch and help in any way possible, and his return to his store was greeted with marked demonstrations. All of this has been brought about by the element of personal love introduced into the business. This love is not mere words, but the business itself is carried on under a system of cooperation that is not a patronizing recognition of inferiors, but a real sharing in the whole business. Other men on the street look upon Milton Wright as odd. It is a fact, however, that while he has lost heavily in some directions, he has increased in his business, and is today respected and honored as one of the best and most successful merchants in Raymond. And there's Miss Winslow. She has chosen to give her great talent to the poor of the city. Her plans include a musical institute where choruses and classes in vocal music shall be a feature. She is enthusiastic over her life work. In connection with her friend, Miss Page, she has planned a course in music which, if carried out, will certainly do much to lift up the lives of the people down there. I am not too old, dear Caxton, to be interested in the romantic side of much that has been tragic here in Raymond. And I must tell you that it is well understood here that Miss Winslow expects to be married this spring to a brother of Miss Page, who was once a society leader and club man, and who was converted in a tent where his wife that is to be took an active part in the service. I don't know all the details of this little romance, 
but I imagine there is a story wrapped up in it, and it would make interesting reading if we only knew it all. These are only a few illustrations of results in individual lives owing to obedience to the pledge. I meant to have spoken of President Marsh of Lincoln College. He is a graduate of my alma mater, and I knew him slightly when I was in the senior year. He has taken an active part in the recent municipal campaign, and his influence in the city is regarded as a very large factor in the coming election. He impressed me, as did all the other disciples in this movement, as having fought out some hard questions, and as having taken up some real burdens that have caused, and still do cause, that suffering of which Henry Maxwell speaks, a suffering that does not eliminate, but does appear to intensify, a positive and practical joy. In his steps, chapter 20. But I am prolonging this letter possibly to your weariness. I am unable to avoid the feeling of fascination which my entire stay here has increased. I want to tell you something of the meeting in the first church today. As I said, I heard Maxwell preach. At his earnest request, I had preached for him the Sunday before, and this was the first time I had heard him since the association meeting four years ago. His sermon this morning was as different from his sermon then as if it had been thought out and preached by someone living on another planet. I was profoundly touched. I believe I actually shed tears once. Others in the congregation were moved like myself. His text was, What is that to thee? Follow thou me. It was a most unusually impressive appeal to the Christians of Raymond to obey Jesus' teaching and follow in his steps, regardless of what others might do. I cannot give you even the plan of the sermon. It would take too long. At the close of the service, there was the usual after-meeting that had become a regular feature of the first church. Into this meeting have come all those who have pledged to do as Jesus would do, and the time is spent in mutual fellowship, confession, question as to what Jesus would do in special cases, and prayer that the one great guide of every disciple's conduct may be the Holy Spirit. Maxwell asked me to come into this meeting. Nothing in all my ministerial life, Caxton, has so moved me as that meeting. I never felt the Spirit's presence so powerfully. It was a meeting of special reminiscences and of the most loving fellowship. I was irresistibly driven in thought back to the first years of Christianity. There was something about all this that was apostolic in its simplicity and Christ imitation. I asked questions. One that seemed to arouse more interest than any other was in regard to the extent of the Christian disciples' sacrifice of personal property. Maxwell tells me so far no one has interpreted the spirit of Jesus in such a way as to abandon his earthly possessions, give away of his wealth, or in any literal way imitate the Christians of the order, for example, of St. Francis of Assisi. It was the unanimous consent, however, that if any disciple should feel that Jesus in his own particular case would do that, there could be only one answer to that question. Maxwell admitted he was still, to a certain degree, uncertain as to Jesus' probable action when it came to the details of household living, the possession of wealth, the holding of certain luxuries. It is, however, very evident that many of these disciples have repeatedly carried their obedience to Jesus to the extreme limit, regardless of financial loss. There is no lack of courage or consistency at this point. It is also true that some of the businessmen who took the pledge have lost great sums of money in this imitation of Jesus, 
and many have, like Alexander Powers, lost valuable positions owing to the impossibility of doing what they have been accustomed to do, and at that same time, what they felt Jesus would do in the same place. In connection with these cases, it is pleasant to record the fact that many who have suffered in this way have been at once helped financially by those who still have means. In this respect, I think it is true that these disciples have all things in common. Certainly, such scenes as I witnessed at the first church on that after-service this morning, I never saw in my church, or in any other. I never dreamed that such Christian fellowship could exist in this age of the world. I was almost incredulous as to the witness of my own senses. I still seem to be asking myself if this is the close of the 19th century in America. But now, dear friend, I come to the real cause of this letter, the real heart of the whole question, as the First Church of Raymond has forced it upon me. Before the meeting closed today, steps were taken to secure the cooperation of all other Christian disciples in this country. I think Maxwell took this step after long deliberation. He said this much to me as we were discussing the effect of this movement upon the church in general. Why, he said... Suppose that the church membership generally in this country made this pledge and lived up to it. What a revolution it would cause in Christendom. But why not? Is it any more than the disciple ought to do? Has he followed Jesus unless he is willing to do this? Is the test of discipleship any less today than it was in Jesus' time? I do not know all that preceded or followed his thought of what ought to be done outside of Raymond, but the idea crystallized today in a plan to secure the fellowship of all the Christians in America. The churches, through their pastors, will be asked to form disciple gatherings like the one in the first church. Volunteers will be called for in the great body of church members in the United States, who will promise to do as Jesus would do. Maxwell spoke particularly of the result of such general action on the saloon question. He is terribly in earnest over this. He told me that there was no question in his mind that the saloon would be beaten in Raymond, at the election now near at hand. If so, they could go on with some courage to do the redemptive work begun by the evangelist and now taken up by the disciples of his own church. If the saloon triumphs again there, it will be a terrible and, as he thinks, unnecessary waste of Christian sacrifice. But however we differ on that point, he convinced his church that the time has come for a fellowship with other Christians. Surely, if the first church could work such changes in society and its surroundings, the church in general, if combining such a fellowship, not of creed but of conduct, ought to stir the entire nation to a higher life and a new conception of Christian following. This is a grand idea, Caxton, but right here is where I find myself hesitating. I do not deny that the Christian disciple ought to follow Christ's steps as closely as these here in Raymond have tried to do. But I cannot avoid asking what the result would be if I ask my church in Chicago to do it. I am writing this after feeling the solemn, profound touch of the Spirit's presence. And I confess to you, old friend, that I cannot call up in my church a dozen prominent business or professional men who would make this trial at the risk of all they hold dear. Can you do any better in your church? What are we to say? That the disciples would not respond to the call, come and suffer? Is our standard of Christian discipleship a wrong one? 
And would we be agreeably disappointed if we once asked our people to take such a pledge faithfully? The actual results of the pledge, as obeyed here in Raymond, are enough to make any pastor tremble, and at the same time, long with yearning that they might occur in his own parish. Certainly never have I seen a church so singly blessed by the Spirit as this one. But am I myself ready to take this pledge? I ask the question honestly, and I dread to face an honest answer. I know well enough that I should have to change very much in my life if I undertook to follow his steps so closely. I have called myself a Christian for many years. For the past ten years, I have enjoyed a life that has had comparatively little suffering in it. I am, honestly to say it, living at a long distance from municipal problems and the life of the poor, the degraded, and the abandoned. What would the obedience to this pledge demand of me? I hesitate to answer. My church is healthy, full of well-to-do, satisfied people. The standard of their discipleship is, I am aware, not of a nature to respond to the call of suffering or personal loss. I say, I am aware. I may be mistaken. I have erred in not stirring their deeper life. Caxton, my friend, I have spoken my inmost thought to you. Shall I go back to my people next Sunday and stand up before them in my large city church and say, Let us follow Jesus closer. Let us walk in his steps, where it will cost us something more than it is costing us now. Let us pledge not to do anything without first asking, What would Jesus do? If I should go before them with that message, it would be a strange and startling one to them. But why? Are we not ready to follow him all the way? What is it to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to imitate him? What does it mean to walk in his steps? The Reverend Calvin Bruce, D.D., of the Nazareth Avenue Church, Chicago, let his pen fall on the table. He had come to the parting of the ways, and his question, he felt sure, was the question of many and many a man in the ministry and in the church. He went to his window and opened it. He was oppressed with the weight of his convictions, and he felt almost suffocated with the air in the room. He wanted to see the stars and feel the breath of the world. The night was very still. The clock in the first church was just striking midnight. As it finished, a clear, strong voice down in the direction of the rectangle came floating up to him as if borne on radiant pinions. It was a voice of one of Gray's old converts, a night watchman at the packing houses, who sometimes solaced his lonesome hours by a verse or two of some familiar hymn. Must Jesus bear the cross alone, and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone, and there's a cross for me. The Reverend Calvin Bruce turned away from the window, and, after a little hesitation, he kneeled. What would Jesus do? That was the burden of his prayer. Never had he yielded himself so completely in the Spirit's searching revelation of Jesus. He was on his knees a long time. He retired and slept fitfully with many awakenings. He rose before his clear dawn and threw open his window again. As the light in the east grew stronger, he repeated to himself, What would Jesus do? Shall I follow his steps? The sun rose and flooded the city with its power. When shall the dawn of a new discipleship usher in the conquering triumph of a closer walk with Jesus? 
When shall Christendom tread more closely the path he made? It is the way the master trod. Shall not the servant tread it still? That's it for part two. Join me in the next episode for the conclusion of the story. This show is listener supported. Right now I'm producing this project between shifts at my full-time job. So I'm working 10 to 11 hours a day. I would eventually love to do Truce full-time, which would mean more quality episodes for you and some much-needed rest for me. Visit trucepodcast.com donate for more information or Venmo me at at trucepodcast. Share the podcast with your friends and family and please leave a review on your podcast app. God willing, we'll talk again soon. Truce is a production of Truce Media, LLC. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.